thank you everyone for, for being here and sticking around and for the, for the conversations. Um, I wanted to, to share some thoughts on, on intimacy in this, this session. Um, just a, a few things that have really helped me kind of get my head around this and again, help me to enjoy knowing Jesus in, in this season of life. Um, and I think we, we need to unlearn quite a few things from our culture to learn what the Bible is saying on these things. Um, I touched on a couple of these points last night, but it would do us good just to, just to underline them. So I want us to think about some of the dynamics of intimacy, as we see that in the, in the New Testament especially. Um, one, of the, one of the on-ramps to intimacy that the Bible gives us, not the only one, but one of them that we tend to neglect. And then the, thirdly, third, the third thing is, is to think about where our ultimate intimacy is found. Um, so let's think first about the dynamics of, of intimacy. And what I want us to see in this is that we, as, as single people especially, but not just as single people, intimacy is a much broader category in the Bible than it is in our culture. So if, if one misconception, it turns out, I had of Paul was that he wasn't a parent and learned, actually Paul did a lot of, there was some real begetting he did do in the Lord. The other thing was that Paul being single meant he was a, a kind of a lone ranger. And the fact is Paul was embedded, even though he was around the place a lot, he was embedded in a, in a very wonderful relational kind of matrix. So t turn, if you would, to Romans chapter uh, 16, um, which is page 950. Paul was not a lone ranger. In my, in my mind's eye, my mental movie of Paul's ministry was he is kind of played by a younger Clint Eastwood. And it's just kind of out there on his own, kind of steely glint in his eye, kind of lone ranger, turns up in a city, plants a church there, crazy stuff happens, a riot, may get thrown in jail, hangs in there, leaves, goes on, does the next thing. But in my mind, he's always on his own. There may be one or two people tagging along here and there, trying to keep up with him, but he's basically doing this stuff on his own. And I love Romans 16. It's a, it's a passage I tend to skip over because it, it feels like the end credits to the book of Romans. And in kind of Netflix mode, I'm like, just skip to the next episode. Let's just skip into 1 Corinthians. It's like, yeah, great, so-and-so, say hi to so-and-so. Okay, I kind of, yeah, okay, there's people that say hi to each other. I don't really need to, to dwell in Romans 16. But as you walk through Romans 16, you realize Paul was very deeply immersed in the lives of others. And two things stand out to you as you just scan down all those different greetings in Romans 16. The first is that Paul uses the language of being in Christ a lot, the, the idea that we are in Christ together. Um, I mean, even I just looked at verse two there. Welcome Phoebe in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Uh, even the way we welcome someone is in the Lord. There's a, there's a, there's a spiritual environment in which that takes place. Um, verse three, I have no idea how to say these names. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ. So it becomes very clear that it's in Jesus, Paul has got to know all of these people. Being in Christ, 
folds us into the lives of lots of other people who are in Christ. You don't get Jesus without his people. Uh, when I was born, I, I was the, the second last child. Why improve on perfection? Um, so my, my older brother is two and a half years older than me. He maintains that those first two and a half years of his life were the best two and a half years of his life. That was when the family was at its, its happiest before I, I turned up and complicated everyone's lives. But here's the thing, when I was born, I instantly became both a son and a brother. I, I couldn't be one without being the other. Being my parents' child meant I was also my brother's sibling. And as we come to Jesus, we realize that as we receive God as our Father, as we appear in this spiritual household, we don't get God as our Father without his other people as our brothers and sisters. And, and Paul is leaning into that here. So I just, my, I just scanned down to verse eight. By the way, if you're looking for some pretentious children's names, Romans 16 is the place where you greet. Ampliatus. Hey, meet my son, Ampliatus. I think it's a son. Who knows? Uh, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. You see what's happening there? So not only do I notice that in the Lord in Christ language, but I, I also notice the language of affection Paul is using. Um, you realize Paul was not only bound up with lots of other people, but his heart was too. There are lots of, actually quite a few people in the Bible Paul refers to as my beloved. Um, we, we live in a, in a culture where because we've so sexualized closeness and intimacy, we've made it harder to use affectionate language of friends. We can just about get away with, hey, bud, I love you. That's kind of okay as long as you, you know, ha, slap on the back and kind of <clears throat> thing, you know. Paul was quite unembarrassed to say of certain other people, this is, this is my beloved in the Lord. Um, I mentioned last night, he says of, Onesiphorus in Onesimus, whatever that name is, in, in Philemon. He refers to him as my very heart. I'm sending him back to you, my very heart. Now, what, I noticed two things about this. Paul will use very affectionate language, but he'll use it of more than one person. If Paul only used the language of my very heart, my beloved, of, of just one person, and everyone else was kind of, you know, so-and-so is, he's, yeah, he's kind of my friend, but this is my beloved, that would look a bit unhealthy. But I'm struck, Paul had that affectionate closeness with a wide range of people. It, was, it didn't seem to be exclusive. So Romans 16, just at the very least, just even scanning down that list, shows me that, that even someone like Paul was more embedded relationally than we tend to think he was, and not in a, just in a utilitarian kind of, well, I need other people to, to be co-workers here. There was, there was heart language involved with that. He, he let himself, 
his heart was close to other people. He loved other people. He wanted them to know he loved them. And it begins to, to open up again this, this category of intimacy that the Bible gives us that, that is entirely non-romantic and non-sexual. And in our culture at the moment, we have so collapsed sex and intimacy into each other that we can't conceive of one without the other. And so we, we find it hard to imagine there's any kind of intimacy that's non-sexual. And so when we see something that seems to be intimate, we assume it is sexual, which is why it's making it harder for guys to have good friendships. Because a lot of the things that should be the marks of a healthy friendship, we have over-sexualized in our culture. So here's what we need to realize, given that the cultural context, it's possible to have a lot of sex without having intimacy. And it's possible to have true intimacy that is entirely nothing to do with sex. We need to get our heads around that. Actually, this is good news for other people too. <laughs> um, I was giving a, a, a presentation, don't ask me how this happened, but I was giving a presentation to a, an LGBT group at a very secular university. Somehow they, they let an evangelical pastor come in and, and talk to the crowd. And we, it was actually we had a, one of the most interesting evenings I've ever spent um, because, because of the questions that came up. And, you know, I was trying to share things about what it meant to be Christian and, and try and get around some of the misconceptions that, that, that they might have. And the moment they were most dialed in when I, was, when, I was, when I was making this very point, that the Bible actually opens up categories of intimacy for us that we don't have in our culture today. And a lot of people are trying to find intimacy through sexual relationships and they're having a lot of sex and not getting to the intimacy part. Now in the Bible, sex is meant to be an expression of intimacy within marriage. But the sex on its own doesn't create the intimacy. It's meant to be a vehicle for it and a, and a confirmation of it, an embodiment of it. And you can be having lots and lots of sex without really experiencing intimacy. And it's one of the tragedies that, that so many people are f looking for intimacy through sexual relationships in a way that makes people easy to use sexually. I've, I've had to pastor people who are, are dealing with the wreckage of this. I think that may explain some of what someone like David went through in the Old Testament. David had a very screwed up view of women. Uh, we know he, he had many sexual partners. And I wonder if one of the things behind David saying to, to Jonathan, your love means more to me than, than that of a woman, is simply because David was experiencing some actual real intimacy with Jonathan and he hadn't been with women. Not that David was gay, that's the, that's the stupid Western way of, of reading that line. And here's the other thing, you can have a lot of intimacy without having sex. Paul, we see that reflected in Paul's life. This, he had people that, that were his beloved. I remember being at a wedding once and the groom made a joke about how before he met his now wife, he had lived a life without love as a single man. 
And I, I just wanted to, to rip his head off because he's, he's actually, what he was trying to make a silly joke about, he was, he was actually underlying one of, the, one of the worst lies of our age, which is that if you don't have romantic love, you live without love. I was talking to a pastor who is, is not a Bible believer and is very kind of liberal and progressive in his theology. Um, we were talking about sexual ethics. I was talking about, you know, no sex outside of marriage, no sex with someone of the same gender as you. And he was saying, you are forcing people to live a life without love. And I'm not normally this confrontational. I hate confrontation, but I, the words just came out of my mouth before I could stop them. I just said to him, and forgive the bluntness of this language, but I said to him, if the only way of having love in your church is by being married, your church sucks. <laughs> because it does. Now that, that is the way our world thinks. If you don't have a romantic someone, you don't have anything. And that the New Testament shows us the lie of that. Jesus had deep friendship. I mentioned last night that there were, the, there were the 12 disciples that Jesus kind of did life with, that he lived with, that he ate with, that he traveled with, that he ministered with. Within the, the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John, that he seemed to sort of open up a little bit more to and bring them in on, on a few more things than the, than the 12. Uh, one of those, John, John describes himself in, in his own gospel as the disciple Jesus loved. And again, we can read stupid things into that. <laughs> But we need to realize two things. Firstly, John himself tells us in his own gospel there were other people Jesus loved. He talks about how Lazarus was someone Jesus loved, how Martha and Mary were people Jesus loved. So John isn't pretending this is some exclusive, hey, I'm, I'm the one Jesus loved. No, what John is showing us, and this is such a beautiful thing for us to know in our own cultural time, is that whereas we tend to define ourselves by the kind of person we love, so if I love people who are the same sex as me, that defines me as being gay in our culture. We are defined by who we love. John is saying, no, we are defined by Christ loving us. That overturns every other kind of identity we might have. John is just saying, I'm the person Jesus loved, not because he thinks he's the only one Jesus loved, but John can't get over the fact that Jesus loved him. The love of, of Jesus in John's life has become defining for him. It's an identity, and that's the case for all of us. Jesus has loved us, and we haven't got over it yet. And we even see between Jesus and John, there's, there's, there's appropriate tactileness. There's a, there's a scene in John 13 where, where John is reclined at Jesus' chest. People didn't sit in, in dining chairs at a table like we think of. People would, would recline with the food in the middle and John was evidently reclining up against Jesus' chest. There's an appropriate physicality to their friendship. So the Bible shows us that, that actually friendship is a form of intimacy. If intimacy is being deeply known and deeply loved at the same time, then you don't need to be dating to have intimacy. 
In fact, the way we do dating today sometimes mitigates against intimacy because we're trying to present a, a version of ourselves that is so unlike the reality that we then have this, this kind of dilemma after a few dates of, at some point, I've got to show them the real me. And by then, we may feel like we've, we've kind of gone too far with the Instagram version of ourselves. It's too risky for them to know the real version of ourselves. It's why we need friends. Actually, it's why it's good when I'm not prescribing this, but I, it, it can be healthy when you date someone you already know. Because you actually know the real person already. Friendship, as we saw last night, when, when Jesus defines friendship, he defines it based on disclosure. So one of the ways we actually find intimacy is by being honest with people. Uh, one of my friends back in Nashville, Ray, often says, you can be known, no, how did you say this? You can be known or you can be impressive, but you can't be both. So you need to choose which you are going to be. If you want to be impressive, okay, go down that route, but you're never really going to be known. And you're not going to be known without risking being unimpressive to people. Um, I mentioned James 5.16, which says to confess our sins to one another. Another passage that is very key on this, and, and without which, again, we're going to struggle to find intimacy, is 1 John 1, verse 7, which says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's page 1021. In, in the context of, of what John is talking about in that letter, walking in the light is being honest. The light exposes the reality. Walking in the light is, is just coming clean. If we walk in the light, if we are honest with one another, John says two things happen. First, we have fellowship with one another. We would expect him to say, if we walk in the light as, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God, and we do. But the point John is making is if we're honest with each other, we have fellowship with each other. Fellowship, it turns out, is not merely two or more Christians in the presence of coffee. Fellowship is when we are being honest with each other. Because what happens is the more you begin to disclose what is really going on in your life to someone else, the more that person is realizing, okay, the dynamic between us has now got more real. Our, our, our way of relating has, has gone to a different level now. We're not just the kind of, how are you fine? How are you fine? Did you see Ted Lasso last night? That scene was funny. Yeah, haha, have a good week. Off you go. Whatever that is, that, that's not a bad thing. That's not fellowship. John says, as we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We really feel as though, if, if you're someone I can be honest with and you can be honest with me, then 
we, we really do have a stake in each other. We really are there for each other. That has taken our friendship to, to a new reality. And the second thing John says flows from this in, at the end of verse seven there is he says, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There is something about that, that honesty with each other that makes the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus more of a felt reality. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses present tense us from all sin. It's not that I cannot be absolved in God's sight until you have received my confession. That's not what John is saying. He is saying that you, hearing my confession of sin and receiving it and, and assuring me of God's grace in Christ, that makes the gospel more real to me. That makes the blood of Christ and its cleansing power less of an ab abstraction that feels like a really great hypothetical idea and it, it brings it into my reality. As, as one writer said, it's the difference between reading a recipe and tasting a meal. And it's possible to, to kind of relate to the gospel at the, at the level of abstraction. There's, there's this hypothetical death in my hypothetical sin by a hypothetical Jesus and brings it to, to actually my felt experience. I really am cleansed from my real sin by a real savior. And one of the things that makes that all more real is how you react when I walk in the light with you and how I react when you walk in the light with me. We will not have intimacy if we're not willing to be honest. If we're simply curating an image of ourselves to try and kind of wow other people or reassure other people, we're not gonna experience intimacy. Which means one of the things I, 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 I love saying is, is that you can have, you can experience intimacy, if you like, in, in, in two dimensions when it comes to other people. Uh, marriage is the deepest form of intimacy. Okay, there's, there's this one other person that you are pretty much doing life 24 seven with. They, they get to see everything about your life and you get to see everything about their life. That is a depth of intimacy that as a single person I don't experience. But conversely, as a single person there is a breadth of intimacy that I get to experience that actually my married friends might not. I, I have a capacity for friendship I wouldn't have if I was married. I, I can invest in a wider range of friends than, than would be possible uh, if I was married. And so I can say that there's, there's, a, there's a gang of people who really do know me and that I can walk through life with and, and be transparent with. That is an experience of intimacy. Now, one thing we, we need to kind of bring into this is obviously with, with any human relationship we, we have the capacity to turn any good relationship into something unhealthy 
Uh, marriages can, can become unhealthy when they are either not intimate enough or when they are, there's a kind of mutual idolatry. That is possible with friendship too. It's possible for friendship to become unhealthy, for us to become kind of over-dependent on each other and, and that kind of thing, for a friendship to become, to become idolatrous. And one of the things that helps me kind of try to keep track of that potential dynamic is to think that part of the, and I mentioned this last night, part of what makes friendship friendship is its non-exclusivity. Uh, with, with the people I call my closest friends, being close with one of them doesn't make me less close with another one of them. It, it's, it's not like, it's not a zero-sum game. Marriage is, the kind of intimacy you have within marriage is exclusive. And if you start to try and share that around, you are taking away from your marriage. And so one of the, the early warning signs that a friendship might be becoming unhealthy is when you're beginning to think of it in exclusive terms, which can happen in, in one of two ways. You can be thinking, okay, I only even want to see this person with it just being the two of us. I don't want to share this person with anyone else. That, that can be the early warning sign that you're, you're actually beginning to take this friendship in, in what will ultimately be a more unhealthy, romantic kind of direction. Now, that, there are times when I, d I just want a one-on-one -on -one with a friend because there's things we need to talk about. I'm speaking more than that. If I'm mainly seeing this friend as it's, it's just the two of us, that's the way I want it. And I don't want anyone else ever being around, then that's a sign that's becoming unhealthy. Second sign that's becoming unhealthy is that I only ever tell things to that person. Uh, one of the things that has really helped me just to enjoy friendship is, is knowing I have a, a gang of people I can tell anything to. And no one of them is the sort of the key friendship in my life without which I cannot live. No one of those people is my soul thinking that's the person who gets me and no one else does and they're in a unique category of their own. Whereas if I find myself thinking, well, I don't want to tell this particular thing to any of those other guys, I just want to tell it to this person. This is the, this is the only person who gets it. Something's probably beginning to go awry. Again, it's a form of exclusivity that isn't necessary for the friendship itself to be healthy. Does that make sense? I would love to chat more about that when we have Q&A. Um, here's the next thing, which is one of the, the keys to intimacy. I think I'm only on point two of what I said I was going to cover, but we'll, we may, this may be the, the final point. <laughs> um, I want to think a, a little bit about hospitality as one of the on-ramps to, to intimacy. If one of the on-ramps is, is honesty and disclosure, another on-ramp is, is hospitality. And I want to flag this up because, again, we get it wrong culturally, and what the Bible says about it tends to surprise us. We get it wrong culturally because we tend to think that hospitality is entertaining, i.e. it's putting on a good show. And so when, typically when people say, oh, so-and-so is really wonderful at hospitality, what they most often mean is they've got a beautiful home and they're, they're really good at cooking. But, but hospitality is not 
predicated on whether you, you know, whether you have the, a beautiful, you've got all the fall decorations on your table now and you know, it looks really beautiful. That might be the case, that's not a bad thing, but that's not what makes hospitality hospitality. Hospitality in the Bible is opening up your life to other people, whatever your life is. If your life is a beautifully decorated home, great. If your life isn't, <laughs> that's okay. You can still be hospitable. It's opening up your life to other people. and You don't even need to have a home to be hospitable. It's just sharing life with others. And I want to mention a couple of verses that, that have helped me to kind of think about this. These verses, they, they challenge me. Um, in Romans 12, verse 13, well, I'll, I'll read from verse 11. Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Paul is in, in kind of apostolic Twitter mode. I'm just firing out kind of things you need to do. Uh, rejoice in hope, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the Lord, the, the, the needs of, of the saints. You know, serve the Lord, show, seek to show hospitality. These things are all bound up together. Now here's what I want us to, to, to consider. The Christian life is an ecosystem. Paul is not giving us a menu of things we can do as Christians and you, and you, you pick the one that you like the look of today. So today I'm gonna go for be patient in tribulation. Now, Paul is saying we need to be doing all of these things, and because the Christian life is an ecosystem, if we drop one of these things out, it will affect our capacity to do and enjoy the other things. And what might surprise us is that Paul puts hospitality on the same list that he puts things like contributing to the needs of others and being constant in prayer. It, it, it's up there with those things which I think means we can't expect to move forwards and flourish in those other things if we drop hospitality out of our life. Being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, being constant in prayers, contributing to the needs of the saints is gonna be bound up with seeking to show hospitality. That's just the way the Christian life is integrated like that. But here's, here's another thing I noticed about that verse. Paul doesn't simply say, be hospitable. Paul says, seek to show hospitality. In other words, don't, when the moment, it's not simply when you have to be, please, please be hospitable. Paul would say, being on the lookout, pursue it, seek it. Not do it when you have to, in, in, a, in a reactive way. And one of the elders says, hey, so-and-so could really do with having a meal with someone this week. Are you, could you do that? I, okay, I'll do it. Okay, I've done hospitality now. Paul is saying, seek to show hospitality. Think, what are, what are opportunities for me to, show, to share my life with other people? And again, because the Bible knows our hearts, uh, in, in 1 Peter Chapter 4, verse 9, 
uh, Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because the Bible knows my heart, the Bible knows I can be persuaded to do the right thing but still quietly, gently resent doing the right thing in my heart. So Peter says, okay, now that you're doing the hospitality thing, do it without grumbling. Don't do it in a begrudging, well, I I know the Bible tells me I have to do this, so I better do it, but I really would rather not be doing it, but at least I'm doing it. Now, don't do it through gritted teeth. Do it cheerfully. This is not something you have to do. This is something you get to do. And actually, you will realise this is unlocking something in you that is blessing you to put yourself out in this way. But again, I think we will struggle to experience intimacy if we're not practicing biblical hospitality. And again, not, I've I've got to be able to cook amazing stuff and have an amazing looking home. Ignore all of that. Letting people into your real life is hospitality. Paul says, seek to find ways of doing that. And Peter says, and do it without grumbling. This is for your good that you're doing it. This is going to enrich your Christian life to be doing this. Um, I was going to talk about ultimate intimacy. Really, all I wanted to say on that is our our ultimate intimacy is Jesus. And again, it's one of these things where we, we, we need to hear and believe two things at the same time. We need to hear and believe that Jesus is our ultimate intimacy. There is no greater intimacy than the relationship we have with Jesus. And Jesus is not our only intimacy. Jesus wants us to have friends. If you remember from John 19 last night, when he said, mother, behold your son. John, behold your mother. I like that even as he's dying on a cross, Jesus is thinking of the relational needs of his people. He, he cares about this stuff. He cares that you and I have friends in our lives. So we mustn't think, well, if Jesus is my ultimate intimacy, if Jesus is sufficient, then that means I shouldn't need other friendships. No, Jesus has created us to need other friendships. He's not saying, hey, if you love me, you don't need anyone else. Jesus is saying part of loving me is is learning how to be a friend with other people. But we shouldn't be looking in friendship with other people for what we can only find in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that can fulfill us. Other people can't. You can have some wonderful friendships in this life that are so enriching, that are so life-giving, But if you're putting your hopes on those friendships, they will never be enough. They can't be, no no one of us can be everything to anyone else. Only Jesus can bear that load and he loves doing that. He loves being our savior. So I'm gonna pause there, we'll we'll have some Q&A. Does that sound good?